Dog tags in the Civil War, one of the most devastating Union defeats took place in Florida, Confederate Lancers in New Mexico, a camel as a regimental mascot. Learn this and more on the Untold Civil War podcast available on iTunes, Spotify, and Buzzsprout website. In 230 BC, the six-year-old scion of the Cornelii Scipione family, Publius Cornelius Scipio, with a solemn blend of reverence and awe reflected in his features, stood silently within the form of Rome. The beating heart of the Republic's day-to-day life, that would have been typically bustling with shouts and activity, had it not been for the spectacle unfolding in front of the crowd, the funeral oration of the child's granduncle, Gnaeus Cornelius Scipio whose body, enrobed in a white toga with a purple border, marking him as an esteemed former holder of the consulship of Rome, was gently being placed in an almost upright position on the rostra, the speaking platform at the southern base of the forum, facing northwards, as if readying to address the crowd from beyond the grave. Accompanied, by a long line of his Cornelii Scipione ancestors, who interestingly, although long departed, in some cases for hundreds of years, had too been brought back from the dead for this day, by the living male relatives of this great Roman patrician house, wearing the death masks and togas of their most prolific ancestors, many donning the white togas with a purple border denoting former consuls, Others, the solid purple togas, identifying them as censors, with a few of these even embroidered with gold, indicating that the deceased had been awarded a triumph during their lifetime. These many figures being seated in a row, to the sides of the recently departed, facing the crowd and the six-year-old Scipio, who all watched with deepening amazement and respect given the impressive extent of the assembly before them. Indeed, more holders of such honors than any other patrician family could hope to match. Before long, the eldest son of Gnaeus Cornelius Scipio, beginning to address the crowd, delivering his father's eulogy, speaking to his many accomplishments in life, the political offices he had held, the battles he had been involved in, including his time as a general and admiral in the First Punic War, two times elected consul, and when finished there, moving on to speak to the successes and achievements of the other ancestors now present with them, adding to the powerfully visible expression of their proud family lineage that traced all the way back to Rome's beginnings as a minor kingdom. Serving and leading with distinction, through to its reinvention into a republic in 509 BC, to this day, almost 300 years later in 230 BC. A veritable army of former senators, political and military leaders, immortalized, and that had all played their part to form Rome into the dominant power of the Italian peninsula. Accomplishments that the young Scipio would have been well versed in by now, because, although a mere child, he would have been acutely aware 
that these were the heavy future expectations that were already being placed on his small shoulders, expected to add to the glory of the Cornelii Scipiones, and thus the glory of Rome. Welcome to the Warlords of History podcast. I'm your host, Mark Pimenta. A show that explores the fascinating lifetimes of warriors and military leaders that shook the very grounds in which they were born into and traveled across, and that ultimately made a huge impact on history. But that also endeavors to go much deeper than simply retelling a chronology of events by taking a broader view of their lives as it relates to the environment and eras that they lived within, to get an understanding of the social and political forces that surrounded and were shifting under the feet of these prolific figures. The forces and defining events that helped to shape their personalities and understanding of the world around them, often coming together in a violent fashion to trigger their motivations and ambitions for taking on the mantle of war. In the process, sparking epic military campaigns, monumental battles, empires created and destroyed, among other achievements that we'll examine in detail to learn about what they did, why and how they did it. The actions that enabled these figures to carve their names into history including what their legacy was beyond their demise. Figures such as the feature of this episode and part one of the series on Publius Cornelius Scipio, more commonly known as Scipio Africanus, a name widely known among history enthusiasts, but primarily for one thing and one thing only, his famous victory defeating the magnificent Carthaginian general Hannibal Barca at the Battle of Zama in 202 BC, putting an end to the Second Punic War. That, in many minds, was the greatest threat to Rome's existence up until that point. Which provides a hint to us as why Scipio is mainly known for that one thing. Because most historical accounts of that war and era tend to more so focus on Hannibal's remarkable achievements. And while that focus is deserved to a certain degree, being that Hannibal's invasion and campaign against Rome, ripping up the Italian peninsula, smashing through numerous Roman legions, was indeed incredible. Events that form part of our story and that will be covered within this series in due course. In the same breath, from a historical standpoint, this has also resulted in Scipio being overshadowed. In my mind, a grave injustice to Scipio Africanus, considering that he is among the greatest generals that Rome ever produced, undefeated on the battlefield, and arguably one of the greatest generals of antiquity, emerging out of a particularly dark moment in the Roman timeline, with the Republic teetering on the edge of calamity in 216 BC with Scipio being one of the few of his countrymen to narrowly escape death on the blood-soaked battlegrounds of Cannae as a young officer. A battle that most historians refer to as Rome's worst defeat in history. Scipio, 
learning from these experiences to later lead a masterful campaign in Hispania, modern Spain, grinding out a series of spectacular battlefield victories there first, taking out one of the legs from under the Carthaginian war machine in the lead-up to his North African campaign and that famous victory at Zama. Along the way, also demonstrating a remarkable political and diplomatic flair for drumming up support in the most unlikeliest of places, even turning foes into friends, which played a vital role in eventually bringing Carthage to its knees. In part, having tallied these tremendous successes, and interestingly I would add, by Scipio appearing to commune with the gods directly, making use of the omen sent his way, and although fiercely patriotic, an ardent believer and protector of Rome, by often breaking with the established rules and norms at home. For example, in using his skyrocketing reputation and gifted oratory skills to obtain his political offices and military commands at a much younger age than he should have been allowed to, and later using the immense spoils of war he had accumulated to break with Roman tradition once again, initiating a trend of victorious generals spending lavishly to maintain and increase their political standing or popularity among its citizens. Scipio's noted penchant for bending the rules, but also his tremendous successes in popularity, thereby ruffling the feathers of the older senatorial class, feeling threatened by this young man, resulting in Scipio becoming caught up in a rising tide of political resentment. Temporarily paused in joining alongside his brother to engage in the Roman Seleucid War, that would clearly mark Rome as the undisputed superpower of the Mediterranean, but that, upon their returning to Rome, did little to end the political drudgery that he would again be pulled into, and that intensified, including legal challenges suspected of embezzling state funds. Leaving Scipio Africanus, the magnificent general that had played a foundational role in changing the fortunes of Rome, bringing it back from one of its darkest points, paving the way for it to become the unrivaled power in the Mediterranean, leaving him deeply embittered, resigning his fate and last few remaining years to a self-imposed exile. But how did all of this start? Who was Publius Cornelius Scipio, the man that would become Scipio Africanus? Well, these are exactly the questions that we'll be aiming to answer in this initial episode of the series, exploring his childhood and upbringing in light of the environment that surrounded him during these formative years. Although in full transparency, already we encounter some pretty big challenges in illustrating this picture out fully. Because Scipio, or I should say a more sequential historical recounting of his timeline, only more so comes into clearer focus for us from about the age of 19 onwards, starting with a recklessly heroic act in saving the commanding general, his father, during the Battle of Ticinus in 218 BC at the dawning of the Second Punic War. And while, sadly, there are few direct historical records 
detailing Scipio's youth before that point, since any such accounts potentially handing this over to us have been lost, including the memoirs he himself penned later in life. Rest assured, all is not lost. Because what we can do is start putting the pieces of the puzzle together, augmenting what we can more confidently say of his earliest years by digging into what the upbringing of a patrician youth like him would have looked like at the time, alongside what was happening in the Roman Republic. Sprinkled in with his known affiliations, character and personality traits, the building blocks of which would have been established during his earliest years. An angle of approach that will shed light on and give us a good sense of what would have shaped Scipio's and his contemporaries' understanding of the world around them. Setting the stage for this initial episode, wherein we'll cover Rome's evolution, including its political and social development, especially in the lead-up to Scipio's birth and his younger years which, at its very essence, was a warrior culture, formed into this shape out of necessity, right from Rome's very beginning, headlined by an unrivaled readiness and resolve to see conflicts through to the bitter end, by the tips of their spears and swords, in the effort to defend or broaden their interests on the Italian peninsula. A military mindset that infused itself into practically every facet of Roman life. Core beliefs entrenched and perpetuated by its aristocratic ruling class, the patrician families, who saw themselves as the source and champions of Roman virtue, imprinting these ideals and heavy expectations on the children of their houses. The fundamental values that would have been most certainly incorporated into Scipio's worldview from an exceedingly early age. Alongside a steadfast belief and dedication to the Roman gods, galvanized by his introduction into the priesthood associated with the Roman god of war, Mars, that would have occurred during his adolescence, while also considering this against the breadth and scope of the more formal type of education afforded to patrician offspring that, interestingly, began acquiring a noticeably Greek flavor at the time, another cultural influence that would deeply resonate with Scipio. Though from a wider perspective, this also denoting the Roman Republic's growing interaction with the wider world, the various peoples and cultures found in central and southern Italy, but also beyond, that inevitably gave way to a dizzying pace of violent conflicts from the 5th through to the 3rd century BC, and that just prior to Scipio's arrival had enabled Rome to emerge not only as the dominant power in the Italian peninsula, but also find themselves, somewhat surprisingly, among the other leading regional powers situated in the wider Mediterranean. Levels gained primarily through the battle-hardened, fighting prowess of the Roman legions a fighting force whose ranks could only be occupied by its citizens. The training for which, as would have been in Scipio's case, being unofficially initiated at a very young age, but with Scipio also being earmarked for future command, in keeping with the tradition of the legion's generals being drawn from the aristocratic and patrician class. 
an expectation that would have undoubtedly been felt by Scipio, an immense sense of duty and responsibility to build upon the achievements of his Cornelii Scipione ancestors, many of whom had played leading roles in Rome's past wars and rising fortunes. However, before we get further into this first episode on Scipio Africanus, I just want to take a brief moment to acknowledge the warlords of history immortals, the patrons of the show. As my deepest gratitude goes out to you for your ongoing support of the podcast through the Warlords of History Patreon page. Alright, let's dive into this. When someone says to you, Ancient Rome, what comes to mind? Is it fleeting pictures of eminent, famous Romans and emperors flashing through your minds? Like Julius Caesar, perhaps the first emperor Augustus, or others such as Marcus Aurelius? Maybe what comes to mind is a vision of the city of Rome itself, behind its imposing walls and fortifications, laden with magnificent marble buildings, statues and monuments, such as the Colosseum, the Flavian Amphitheatre, the Pantheon, numerous temples and ostentatious palaces. Or lastly, could it be a snapshot of a map? depicting the massive empire that surrounded the entirety of the Mediterranean and beyond. Stretching from Britannia and the lush forests of Germania in the north, to the sands of Egypt in the south, from Hispania in the west, to the cradle of civilization, Mesopotamia in the east, clearly marking Rome as the undisputed superpower of the ancient world. The thing is, is that in 236 BC, Rome was none of these things. Not an empire led by an emperor, it was a republic, the formal name being Res Publica Populi Romani, meaning the public matter of the Roman people, or Res Publica for short, the root of the modern word republic, governed by a senate somewhere in between 300 to 500 of the leading citizenry, from its aristocratic class, that were the primary decision makers debating and voting on matters of state. The city of Rome itself, not yet gleaming with marble facades, but rather comprised of buildings constructed from bricks and stone. A grayish, tan-colored, volcanic stone type called Tuff, found near to the Eternal City. Nothing flashy, but solid, functional and practical, a reflection of its sturdy inhabitants. And although showing signs of growing into an imperialistic state, their future dominance far from a foregone conclusion. Because by 236 BC, the Roman Republic didn't even have control of the whole of the Italian peninsula. And the truth of the matter was that Rome was just one among a handful of other states, other foreign powers, that had been expanding their respective spheres of influence within the Mediterranean. In the East, some of the more prominent being the successor states that emerged out of Alexander the Great's empire after his death in 323 BC, such as Antigonid Macedon, Ptolemaic Egypt, and the Seleucid Empire. In Rome's more immediate orbit in the western Mediterranean, 
this being the Carthaginian Empire, also referred to as the Punic Empire. Two charging bulls that had already, earlier, crashed into one another in a violent collision called the First Punic War, that although won by Rome, had been an exceedingly lengthy and draining conflict, leaving the two combatants laboring for breath. Separated for now, but with their horns destined to lock once again, in the next of their wars that was looming on the horizon, a seminal turning point in history known as the Second Punic War, that would threaten Rome's very existence. But why have I continually referenced 236 BC? What made this such an important year? Well, to the Romans at the time, it wasn't particularly noteworthy. In fact, one of the few years wherein there was a lull in Roman warring, in part because they were still catching their breath from the prolonged First Punic War. But from our perspective, in the spinning of this tale and the sequence of events of utmost importance, since this is the year when the man who would later become known as Scipio Africanus was born in Rome. And quick side note here, is that the naming convention that I plan to use throughout the series when referring to our central figure is simply Scipio. But since there are many other Scipios we'll be meeting, especially in this initial episode, I'll try to steer us clear from the confusion by including what their relation is to our Scipio, who was named at birth as Publius Cornelius Scipio, born into the Cornelii Scipiones family, a notable branch of the Cornelii one of the six great patrician families of the Res Publica, whose roots hearkened back to its humble beginnings as a kingdom, the epicenter of which was, of course, the city of Rome situated along the eastern banks of the Tiber River, approximately 30 kilometers inland from the western Italian coastline to the ancient seaport of Ostia, where the Tiber drains into the Tyrrhenian Sea. The city, according to ancient Roman historians, founded in 753 BC. But thanks to modern archaeologists, peeling away at the layers has revealed a starting point much earlier than that, with there being some evidence of human occupation there from as far back as 14,000 years ago. In the prevailing belief that the lands that would become the city of Rome were initially inhabited by pastoral tribes, that would give way to more permanent settlements towards the late Bronze Age, around 1400 BC. Ethnic Latin tribal factions that established villages upon the seven hills of Rome, the amalgamation of which became the basis for the city. How exactly did that happen? Now that is extremely unclear. Was it by force or by choice? We simply don't have those answers. But by the mid-8th century BC, the aforementioned villages ruled over by a singular king, according to Roman historians named as Romulus. However, in 509 BC, the last of its kings being overthrown, when the leading aristocratic or patrician families of the now defunct kingdom took over, becoming the ruling class filling in the seats of the Senate as Rome transitioned from a kingdom into a republic, concentrating political power in their hands, 
ruling over the rest of the population, known as the plebeians or plebs, the commoners of Rome, essentially all those that weren't patricians. Granted, that had been over 270 years prior to Scipio's arrival, and the social order had since undergone some significant shifts. With the plebeians over time extracting more rights, access to political offices and concessions from the ruling class, since they accounted for the vast majority of the population, about 90% of the population, filling out the ranks of the army and handling much of the day-to-day work required to keep Rome running along smoothly. As a result, by the time of the Middle Republic, Scipio's era, of Rome's estimated population of 1 million free people, 300,000 of these adult males, those possessing full Roman citizenship, although the patricians were, for the most part, still the wealthiest of Romans and still largely controlled the Senate, the majority of the highest individual political offices, military commands, and the priesthoods, it was no longer an exclusive stranglehold on wealth and influence. And while the distinction between patrician and plebeian, more specifically patricians and wealthy plebeians, would become largely inconsequential towards the late Republic and onwards. In 236 BC, a patrician namesake remained a significant mark of prestige among Romans, greatly impacting an individual's social standing among their contemporaries. With an important subtext here too, was that there was also fierce competition among the patrician families to outdo one another in the pursuit of family glory and recognition in the advancement of the Republic's objectives. Relating to the Roman virtue called dignitas, a concept hard to nail down completely since there's no direct translation in the English language, but involved the influence a male citizen acquired throughout his life, including personal reputation, moral standing, and ethical worth but also their contribution to the reputation and standing of his family. Which helps to explain why the eldest male child would typically inherit the name of their father, building a sense of continuity between the generations, immortality even, as was the case for Scipio, whose father was also named Publius Cornelius Scipio, and that together with his mother, Pomponia, formed a union that in addition to our Scipio, the eldest of the siblings, produced, although the numbers vary according to historical sources, at least one younger brother and one or two younger sisters. Scipio's younger brother, Lucius Cornelius Scipio, being another of the Cornelii Scipione family that would rise to great future heights. As a part of this brother duo, that would remain remarkably close helping each other throughout the course of their impressive future careers. In many ways, mirroring the relationship between Scipio's father and his brother, Scipio's uncle, Gnaeus Cornelius Scipio Calvus, both of whom were important generals and politicians in the generation before that of our Scipio, and that would both reach one of the highest magistrative offices possible in Rome, that of the consulship. Consuls, the closest thing to kings that the Roman Republic had, 
two of which would be elected to serve alongside each other at a given time, but only for one-year terms. A strict time frame, designed to curb any one individual from sinking their claws into and retaining a consul's considerable powers, called imperium, that included, when in Rome, acting as the head of state, doing things like presiding over senate assemblies. Otherwise, while abroad, starting from outside the one-mile sacred boundary of the city, acting as the supreme military and administrative authority of the res publica, for example, leading military campaigns as the commander-in-chief of the legions. And of note is that the Cornelii Scipiones had a long, fiercely proud tradition and lineage, going back hundreds of years, of succeeding generations occupying the highest offices in Rome and the Senate, as well as leading its armies in battle. In fact, it's been suggested by a number of historians that from the early decades of the Republic to the 3rd century AD, the Cornelii, from all of its branches, produced more eminent statesmen and generals than any other patrician family denoting the type of future expectations that would have most certainly been squarely placed upon the young Scipio's shoulders, probably emphasized to him repeatedly from an exceedingly young age. Associated to that important virtue of dignitas that we talked about a little earlier, the duty to build upon and enhance the family name, a virtue that would have been instilled within Scipio by his father, as the pater familias, or head of the family, who undoubtedly had a direct and huge influence on Scipio's life. But beyond his words, pointed to as an example, reinforced by others in the family, most importantly by his mother in terms of what a young boy should aspire to be like. In what was apparently a rather loving mother-son relationship, according to the ancient Greek historian Polybius, who lived in Rome for many years in the 2nd century BC. In his seminal work, The Histories, describing a number of instances wherein Scipio publicly expressed warm feelings towards his mother, who was an active advocate in supporting and advancing both of her son's public careers as they grew older. Beyond his parents, Scipio having many other relatives to look towards of what it meant to be a Cornelii Scipione, such as his granduncle, Gnaeus Cornelius Scipio, a former consul and general, veteran of the First Punic War, that ended in 241 BC, five years before Scipio's birth. Contemporary influences that would have also kept Scipio well-versed in the many accomplishments of his prolific ancestors, whose presence would have constantly surrounded the youngster in his domus, meaning home, as he ran through its rooms as a toddler into early childhood. And to better highlight what we're talking about here, let's return to Polybius, when he describes how Roman families, particularly the patricians, would have death masks made of their deceased family members that would be placed in the most conspicuous position in the house, on certain occasions decorated with care, and when any distinguished member of the family died, the masks would be worn by the living male relatives during the funeral orations and processions, wearing togas, 
with a purple border if the deceased was a consul or praetor. Solid purple if he had been a censor, another high individual office in the Republic, and embroidered with gold if he celebrated a triumph or achieved anything similar. Polybius going on to say, there could not easily be a more ennobling spectacle for a young man who aspires to fame and virtue, with the most important result being that young men are thus inspired to endure every suffering for public welfare in the hope of winning the glory that attends on brave men. Scipio, as referenced in the opening sequence of this episode, undoubtedly bearing witness to events like this, gaining a comprehensive understanding of his lineage and many prolific ancestors, many of whom that had played important contributing roles into forming Rome as an emerging powerhouse within the Italian peninsula in the lead-up to Scipio's birth. A sequence of events that we'll get into now, since not only will this help us frame up the status of the Roman Republic in the lead-up to his arrival, but will also shed some light on what would have shaped Scipio's and his contemporaries' understanding of the world around them. Because while Rome by 236 BC was certainly emerging as a regional power in the western Mediterranean, their acquisitions beyond the Italian peninsula, Rome's first three provinces off peninsular soil, namely the islands of Sicily, Sardinia, and Corsica, had only been very recent acquisitions, obtained within the last five years before Scipio's birth. What's more, although clearly the dominant state in Italy, as mentioned earlier on, Rome didn't yet control the peninsula in its entirety, possessing most of it, yes, but not in the north. The Arno River, roughly associated with the southern half of the modern province of Tuscany, marking Rome's northern border, with the lands beyond that river, including the Po Valley through to the Southern Alps, sometimes referred to as Cisalpine Gaul, being in the hands of a collection of Gallic tribes, an ethnic Celtic people. Though even those words, Rome possessing control over the rest of Italy, is a little misleading because Rome's dominance over the various other ethnic groups and cities of central and southern Italy was more, let's say, indirect in its nature. Since at this point, the cities and peoples of these regions did not in fact represent a unified group of Roman citizens under Rome's dominion, but rather is more accurately described as a series of bilateral alliances that the res publica had imposed and held with each entity independent of one another. An estimate of somewhere in the realm of 150 of these distinct alliances being in place throughout Italy at this time. And although it did have its flaws, weaknesses that will come to light in future episodes, it was quite the intelligently designed system, since it kept all of the allies divided but beholden to Rome alone as the center of gravity. The nature of these bilateral agreements or alliances having many different forms, so varied and complicated that we won't go into them in much detail here, beyond emphasizing some of the main provisions that would have been typically included, such as that allies, for the most part, 
were allowed to maintain their existing cultural and political institutions, aside from conducting foreign policy, which was left to Rome alone. Colonies of Roman citizens being established in allied territories near their cities. According to David Potter in his book, The Origin of Empire, Rome from the Republic to Hadrian, many of these colonies being similar to that of military camps, thus giving Rome bases throughout Italy. And lastly, what's rather surprising, but of utmost importance to Rome's growing dominance, is that, while allies weren't required to pay financial tribute on an ongoing basis, what they were required to do was provide Rome with soldiers, fully equipped soldiers, on demand. What this meant geographically was somewhat of a confusing patchwork of lands and territories throughout central and southern Italy. And although various maps and historians show different weights, I think a fair rough estimate of the breakdown was roughly one-third of these lands under direct Roman control, with two-thirds subject to Rome through these alliances. But again, most importantly, providing the Republic with an ever-expanding pool of soldiers to draw from. And whereas some of the entities had willingly jumped into these agreements with Rome, since membership did have its benefits, such as in trade and protection from others, for the most part, these alliances had been imposed after being conquered, which in turn strengthened and perpetuated the Republic's ability to wage war. The means by which it had, piece by piece, packed on muscle to eventually reign supreme in the Italian peninsula. Completing the conquest of central Italy by around 290 BC, southern Italy by 272, and the lands north of Rome up to the Arno River by 264 BC. In an exceedingly aggressive process of near-constant warfare, pursuing this expansionistic policy for centuries, made possible, at least in part, because of the relative stability of the res publica's political system. Subsequent generations of senators providing the necessary continuity to persevere on this path for the greater good and glory of Rome, arguably doing so much more effectively than any dynastic monarchy could have, since, as we've no doubt seen by now in the stories of other warlords we've covered in the podcast, also loudly evidenced by Roman history later on, when ruled by dynastic emperors, inevitably, Dynasties churn out abysmal rulers that completely bungle the situation, disrupting any momentum their nations had previously built. So, okay, that's one part of the equation. But probably still begging the question, what exactly made the Roman Republic so warlike, with war seemingly infused into the Roman DNA? For this, we go to Robert Hughes in his book, Rome, a cultural, visual, and personal history, when he says, No city has ever been more steeped in ferocity from its beginnings than Rome. Because initially, when Rome was a small kingdom, and into its early days as a young republic in the 5th century BC, it was out of necessity. And according to Greg Wolfe in his book, Rome, an Empire Story, 
It wasn't that the Romans were unusually militaristic. It was just that they and everyone around them was. Locked in a dog-eat-dog, tremendously competitive environment of numerous neighboring states and tribal groups bumping up against one another, squabbling for land, resources, and influence, leading to the development of a military structure wherein proportions of its citizens would be levied and trained on an annual basis to fight and defend their city as needed. An annual levy, in Latin called the Legio, which is where we get to the naming of Rome's armies as legions. A practice kept up without fail every year, even if not embroiled in active wars, so as to maintain a vigilant state of readiness, since the materialization of future conflicts was viewed as a certainty, just a matter of time, simply the reality of their world. From this, we can much better understand how essentially inevitable it was for martial prowess to become so deeply embedded in the fabric of Roman culture, a warrior society to be sure. As mentioned, the cornerstone of which was not a professional standing army, but rather a diligently trained citizen-based military force, the defining feature or focus of which was on fostering outstanding infantry. The normal size of a legion in this period, with some variation on the numbers being approximately 4,500 soldiers, consisting of 3,000 heavily armed infantry, 1,200 light infantry skirmishers, and 300 cavalry. Anywhere from two to six legions mobilized in a typical year, depending on the needs arising. Though a duty specific to the landowning citizenry, because they were the only ones who could be trusted to fight with conviction and loyalty. In that, it was believed that they had the most to lose in Rome not succeeding in its wars. However, beyond this practical reasoning, what this also related to was something more intangible, yet much deeper and personal to Roman men, impacting their very identity and self-worth as a man, a virtue called Virtus. Again, like dignitas, hard to succinctly nail down in English, but virtus might be best associated with terms like valor, courage, and strength of character, the qualities that added up to the essence of what ideal masculine strength should be. With there being no better platform to demonstrate one's virtus than during military campaigns and on the battlefield which would allow someone to garner respect and honors, increasing their social standing among their peers. Now, beyond the practical and personal, some of Rome's militaristic inclination must also be attributed to the supernatural, the divine will of the gods, as the Romans were a deeply religious people. And according to Roman mythology, being that its preeminent god of war, Mars, also happened to be considered father to the Roman people, the father of Rome's first king, Romulus. From this alone, we can get a further sense of just how deeply warfare was enmeshed into the psyche of the Republic. Another important factor that would have shaped Scipio's personality, since according to the Roman historian Livy, 
Scipio was a member of the Salii, the College of Priests dedicated to Mars. The typical age of induction into this priesthood happening for patrician boys during their adolescence, and being that it was centered around the Roman war god, the duties of the Salii were of course closely linked to the Roman war machine, doing things like participating in ceremonies linked with the opening and closing of the campaigning season, and imploring Mars to protect the legions. And it's believed that only the patrician boys that could demonstrate physical strength, a deep dedication and understanding of the religious rites and rituals, would be chosen for the priesthood. And what also appears evident is that Scipio's dedication to the gods would remain strong throughout his life. Not just with Mars, but as he grew into adulthood, observed visiting the temple of Jupiter, the king of the Roman gods, on a daily basis. As reported by Livy, who said, From the time when he put on the manly gown, referring to the toga that only male citizens of Rome could wear, there was not a day on which he did any business, public or private, without going first to the capital, and after he had entered the temple, sitting down and usually passing the time there alone in seclusion. So here we have a system of beliefs, certainly impressed upon the young Scipio, but taking a few steps back is clear to have also entrenched Rome's cultural warrior mindset right from its humble beginnings, that it would embody from there on in, propelling it to slowly gain steam, successfully defending and then marginally expanding its boundaries beyond Rome's roughly 25-kilometer radius in the early 5th century BC, initially doing so at a crawling pace but due to their practice of establishing bilateral agreements with those that they defeated, turning them into military allies, thus providing an ever-deepening pool of troops to pull from. This enabled Rome to more aggressively expand, absorbing much of central Italy under their influence through the 4th century, completing this by around 290 BC. A progression that was not without its hiccups, experiencing numerous and rather serious setbacks along the way, such as when King Brennus of the Senones, a Gallic tribe, invaded, defeated, and then sacked Rome in 390 BC, leaving the Romans in a precarious position, but that they never surrendered or gave into. Months later, casting out the Senones from their city in a vicious and bloody street fight. Then shortly afterwards, defeating them in a pitched battle. This event also illustrating for us another important concept or virtue among the Romans, one called gravitas, that they would exemplify time and time again throughout the course of their history, even when wars were going awry and the outlook looked terribly bleak. Gravitas meaning the importance of dedication, preserving one's dignity and moral stance in the face of adversity, with the responsibility to remain committed to seeing a task through, no matter how difficult. Put more informally, a never-say-die type of attitude. A notion perhaps best encapsulated by Polybius, who said, The Romans rely on force in all their enterprises, and think it is incumbent on them 
to carry out their projects in spite of all, and that nothing is impossible when they have once decided on it. An attitude certainly demonstrated during the first half of the 270s BC, when Rome became embroiled in the Pyrrhic War, facing off against one of the widely recognized preeminent generals of antiquity, King Pyrrhus, who traveled from Epirus across the Adriatic to invade southern Italy with a professional army. And despite defeating the Republic in the first two encounters, these victories were only achieved at a steep cost of huge casualties to King Pyrrhus's army, birthing the modern phrase Pyrrhic victory, meaning the achievement of short-term success but at a cost so heavy that it compromises future progress or long-term goals. As seen with the Romans, despite their earlier losses, doggedly returning to the field, again and again, wearing and grinding down the invaders before defeating them in battle in 275, forcing Pyrrhus's retreat back to Epirus which set the stage for Rome's conquering the whole of southern Italy by 272 BC, the region known as Magna Graecia, again by affirming domination over the ethnic Greek cities found there through alliances, only 36 years before Scipio's birth. A war that beyond gaining the south of their peninsula did a couple of other things for Rome, namely boosting their confidence and sphere of influence. Firstly, now, beyond the shadow of a doubt, proving out the skill and quality of their armed forces, and even though a citizen-based army, augmented by allied troop contributions, their intensive training, discipline, beliefs, and constant adaptation, plus loads of practice in war, centuries in the making, had molded them to become one of the finest fighting forces of the ancient world headlined by its centerpiece, their exceptional infantry that formed the backbone of the Roman legions. Armies that had shown themselves more than capable of competing with the professional forces modeled on the Macedonian or Hellenistic military configurations, those pioneered by Philip II of Macedon and Alexander the Great, that up until that point had been considered peerless a notion that goes hand in hand with the second thing that their victory over King Pyrrhus did, which was greatly widen their sphere of influence, putting Rome firmly on the map, so to speak, as a player on the world stage, establishing a wider array of foreign diplomatic relations with other powers found along the coastlines of the Mediterranean Sea, as far-reaching as Ptolemaic Egypt but with smaller states too, since, according to Greg Wolf, thanks to Pyrrhus, the growing scale of Roman strength was now clear across the Mediterranean, with smaller independent nations and city-states increasingly looking to Rome as a potential option for military aid in times of need. An outcome that would produce significant future overtones, rising into a crescendo as a veritable turning point in history in drawing the res publica into a monumental collision with Carthage, also known as the Punic Empire, another surging power found across the sea in North Africa. However, we'll get to that shortly. 
since this is a great spot to explore the relevant impact of these events on Scipio, his early years and education, because there's a fascinating linkage here. In that, a more subtle but equally important impact on Rome, associated with its conquest of the southern Italian peninsula inhabited by these Greek settlements, was the more heavy importation of Greek culture, especially in terms of its influences on Roman education, the timing of which coincides with Scipio's upbringing. Now, there's a lot of moving pieces here, but one thing that we can confidently assume is that up until the age of nine, his was a childhood that would have been spent primarily at the homestead. Since historians are generally in agreement that Rome never instituted a state-sponsored form of elementary education. Accordingly, Scipio's family, including his parents, but also the wider extended family, therefore playing a foundational role, forming out the young Scipio's moral education that would shape his character and personality by impressing upon him Roman values and virtues, some that we've already come across so far like dignitas, virtus, and gravitas, but also the social norms and customs befitting and expected of a male patrician. Granted, an early education that is likely to have been augmented with private tutors, a typical practice for the children of the most wealthy families. At this time, with an influx of Greek tutors being brought in, teaching them everything from math, geography, and history, to poetry, literature, and mythology. Also, of course, the Greek language, a language considered important to the Roman elite and intellectuals, viewed as necessary for a well-rounded education and as a symbol of cultural sophistication. With an accelerated Hellenistic influence being infused into the Roman educational system during the time of Scipio's upbringing which, as mentioned, had commenced shortly after Rome's conquering of Magna Graecia in southern Italy by 272 BC. A notion emphasized by Nanette Pascal in her article, The Legacy of Roman Education, when she writes that, From about 250 BC, as a result of increasing political and military power, Rome increasingly came into contact with the vibrant forces of Hellenistic culture. The wave of Hellenism brought Greek tutors, teachers, philosophers, and rhetoricians, who established schools where they were taught Greek language and literature, a Hellenized educational system that was adopted and gradually improved by the Romans in the area of institutional organization. And while this would eventually result in the development of formal schools, attended more so by the male children of the Roman aristocracy, Schools such as the Grammaticus, building upon what they had learned at home, attended by Roman boys from around 9 to the age of 14, and the Rhetor, attended from 14 to about 17, focused on developing a young man's rhetoric and oratory skills, public speaking intertwined with knowledge of Roman law, a vital component for those seeking a future career in politics. As a quick side note, corporal punishment being extensively used in education, since it was believed that hard lessons were necessary to develop hard men. It remains unclear just exactly how well developed these educational institutions were during Scipio's youth.
with the existence of these schools being much better documented as being in place by the era of the late Republic, roughly 140 BC onwards. Meaning that, we can't say for certain whether Scipio attended any of these schools himself. Nonetheless, it does provide for us the scope of the education Scipio would have received, if not from schools, then from private tutors, since it was widely documented that he was well-educated, keenly intelligent, and a practiced charismatic speaker in both Latin and Greek, also reportedly choosing to write his memoirs in Greek instead of Latin, works that sadly have been lost. The foundation for all of this, however, established in his youth, rendering a man who knew how to move people with his words, whether the soldiers under his command or when working the crowd in matters of politics. And with Greek culture and teachings, apparently, also having struck a resonant chord within Scipio, largely evidenced by his future actions, even his appearance. In contrast to the typical Roman grooming practices of the time, men wearing beards and short hairstyles, from the Roman historian Pliny the Elder, in his encyclopedic book Natural History, we come to learn that Scipio broke with these norms, as the first of all to set up a shave every day, and has also been reported as maintaining a longer hairstyle than usual. Nothing like long flowing locks cascading down, since that would have been considered grossly uncouth, but a better description might be slightly longer than usual, mimicking a stylistic approach that was far more common among the Greeks. And although we can't say for sure, some historians have argued that Scipio may have done this in emulation of Alexander the Great. Beyond Scipio's stylistic appearance throughout his life, also possessing and expressing a deep interest in Greek culture, literature, and philosophy, though an affinity that would be much later used against him by his political enemies who were ardent Roman traditionalists. All of this amounting to Scipio being somewhat of a walking cultural contradiction, because layered within his personality was a youth that would grow into an ardent Roman patriot, as we'll get to in the next episodes, demonstrated beyond the shadow of a doubt in his early military career, especially prevalent after the disaster at the Battle of Cannae. This stemming from the early instruction and education that he would have received at home from his family, and the emphasis on the Roman values and virtues imparted into his being from his youngest days, wherein it was quite common for any pater familias, the male head of the household, particularly for that of patrician houses, in the need to exemplify Roman ideals and virtue, to include a strenuous regiment of military training for their sons, that according to the Osprey book, Rome at War, would use a severity approaching the institutionalized training of Spartan youth. In Scipio's case, wearing the heavy mantle of expectation, to add to the glory of the Cornelii Scipione family, like that of his predecessors. More recently, like his grandfather and granduncle had accumulated during the First Punic War, concluded in 241 BC, five years prior to Scipio's birth. A monumental conflict, 
That brings us back to the overarching Roman Republic chronology, wherein, bolstered by its successes in southern Italy by 272 BC, the Res Publica, from there, continuing an almost yearly cadence of warring, pushing north from their capital to conquer north-central Italy by 264 BC, the region of Etruria, roughly corresponding with the southern half of modern Tuscany, intending to expand further north into the tribal Gallic-held lands of Cisalpine Gaul, until interrupted from undertaking this endeavor due to the eruption of the First Punic War against Carthage, the tremendously wealthy capital of the Punic Empire, located on the northern coast of what is today the country of Tunisia in North Africa. Founded in the late 9th century BC, the birthplace of an enterprising merchant and naval-based people turned empire that, like the Roman Republic, was on the rise expanding its influence in the western Mediterranean. Ruled by a Roman Senate-like body called the Council of Elders, an oligarchy made up of Carthage's wealthiest citizens. However, in contrast to Rome, with the foundation of their empire's dominance being their unrivaled naval strength, whose merchant vessels and warships for centuries would have been seen traveling up and down the coastlines of Italy triremes with three tiers of rowers, but even more imposing was their quinqueremes, boasting five levels of oars, the battleships of the day, prowling and owning the waterways of the western Mediterranean, and far, far exceeding Rome's seagoing capacity, since it was almost exclusively a land-based power, with virtually no warships to speak of, much less a fleet. And in the preceding centuries, while Rome had been busy expanding its hold over mainland Italy, the Carthaginian expansion, driven by its voracious appetite for trade and wealth, by 264 BC had enabled it to build a vast commercial empire, whose domains included almost the entire coastline of northwest Africa, the southern Iberian Peninsula, modern Spain and Portugal, the Balearic Islands, the islands of Corsica, Sardinia, just to the west of Italy, and almost the whole of Sicily. However, what's abundantly clear is that Carthage was by no means a one-trick pony military-wise, and while its navy had always been the core of its strength, Carthage also possessed formidable land forces, one of the largest militaries of the ancient world, the forcible means by which it secured and advanced its commercial interests beyond the coastlines, deeper into the hinterland of its territories. However, understanding this, and that Rome and Carthage were both in the process of expanding their respective spheres of influence, as mentioned earlier, herein lies the source of their inevitable and monumental initial collision. Triggered in 264 BC, over the island of Sicily, that was occupied by three states, Carthage holding the bulk, approximately two-thirds of the island, Syracuse at the eastern shores, and the city of Messana, today called Messina, that lies on the northeastern tip of Sicily, a mere 10 kilometer distance to the toe of the Italian peninsula. 
started when Syracuse attacked Messana, who called out for military aid from both Carthage and Rome. Carthage responding first, sending a force that ended up occupying Messana, looking to add it to their maritime empire. But so uncomfortably close to the Roman domains that this compelled the Republic to intervene, thus beginning what would unfold into the First Punic War, a 23-year marathon documented as being the longest continuous conflict and greatest naval war of antiquity. The Roman legions crossing the Messina Strait, and for the most part, although the fighting was bitter and strenuous, in their early years, more often than not, getting the better of the Carthaginians in battle and open field skirmishes. But interestingly, finding themselves unable to take their cities and fortifications, since Carthage dominated the seas and could easily reprovision and reinforce their defending positions as needed, resulting in the momentum behind the legions starting to ebb, and success in the land war in Sicily starting to slip through their fingers, made worse by the dire risks to their supply lines, since the Carthaginian warships controlled the waterways and coastlines around the island which led to Rome coming to the realization that if they wanted to win this war, they too would have to become a sea power. This, despite the huge knowledge and experience gap that they had in all things naval related, including shipbuilding. Thus beginning another shining example of Roman gravitas, their dedication to seeing a task through to the bitter end, but also a remarkable industriousness that enabled them to build a fleet from ground zero. As a quick side note, an undertaking that was certainly helped by a fortuitous event. According to Polybius, around three years into the war in 261, when an overzealous Carthaginian captain of one of its quincareems ran his ship aground and falling into the hands of the Romans, served them as a model on which they constructed their whole fleet enabling the Romans to reverse-engineer it, greatly speeding up their naval ambitions. In just one year, by 260 BC, putting together a fleet of 120 warships, and although greatly outnumbered by the Carthaginian navy that counted 350 war vessels, also slower and heavier than their Punic counterparts, they went with it anyway. As expected, the inexperienced Romans, faring the worst in the bulk of the initial naval engagements and battles, seeing frighteningly high losses, approximately 700 warships and 100,000 men lost throughout the course of the war. But simply never giving up, coming back time and time again, slowly improving and even innovating their ship designs to build their seagoing strength that by 256 BC counted 330 warships, having astoundingly changed the momentum over the fight for the sea lanes by the late 250s, only to see the tide begin shifting over what was happening back on land. Because in 247 BC, this is when the famed Carthaginian general Hamilcar Barca entered into the equation to take command of operations in Sicily waging a relentless and exceedingly effective campaign against the Romans. An undeniably brilliant military leader, 
arguably the best commander between the two sides in the First Punic War. Though his son, Hannibal, would later outshine even him, proving himself a veritable genius on the battlefield throughout the future Second Punic War, becoming the source of Rome's greatest existential threat. But we'll get to that later. Since in 241 BC, this is when the prolonged First Punic War was finally brought to an end, as a result of the Romans delivering a crushing naval defeat over Carthage at the Battle of the Agates Islands, just off the western Sicilian coast, which led to Carthage, financially exhausted, outlasted by Rome to sue for peace. Finalized by the Treaty of Lutatius, the terms of which included Carthage evacuating Sicily entirely, handing over its cities there to Roman control, thereby establishing Sicily as Rome's first province, and Rome imposing upon Carthage a huge war indemnity of 3,200 talents of silver, or around 100,000 kilograms of silver, to be paid over the next 10 years. But arguably the biggest changeover in the aftermath of the First Punic War was now the Roman Republic in place as the dominant sea power in the western Mediterranean, with their fleet of approximately 400 warships now prowling and owning its waterways and coastlines. A newfound position of strength that they soon put to use in 238 BC, taking more liberties at the expense of their defeated Punic foes, adding insult to injury in conquering the Carthaginian-held islands of Corsica and Sardinia, and then topping that off by demanding an additional indemnity payment of 1,200 talents of silver. Offenses that the Council of Elders had little choice but to begrudgingly swallow down, since after losing the First Punic War, they were mired in some serious domestic disputes in North Africa and were unwilling to jump into another costly war against Rome. At least not yet, given that the seeds for the future Second Punic War had indeed been sown. Aided by the understanding that, with their Punic foe defeated and horribly disorganized, this caused Rome to turn their focus on other theatres and matters, resuming their northwards push on the Italian peninsula throughout the 220s BC and it appears that they may have underestimated the speed of the Carthaginian recovery, since they would prove themselves far from broken. And what's more, is that the latest round of Roman aggressions, those blatant humiliations, drove a renewed wave of resentment to begin building in Carthage, largely championed by Hamilcar Barca, the aforementioned Carthaginian hero of the First Punic War who had already been seething in anger, initially refusing to go along with the Council of Elders' surrender that had brought their war with Rome to an end, but who had since gained massive support and political influence in the Punic capital, so much that this enabled him to begin drawing out and executing a strategic master plan, not just looking to rebuild their previous strength, but surpass it, hungry to return to war with Rome. But again, for the Roman Republic, throughout the time frame of Scipio's youth and upbringing, from 236 to around 220 BC, 
a concern that remained largely in their rearview mirror. Instead, being much more preoccupied with expanding their influence to the north of the Arno River. Throughout the 220s BC, campaigning on an annual basis, directing their legions across the Adriatic, gaining footholds and establishing colonies along the coastlines of Illyria, corresponding with the modern country of Croatia, interspersed with expeditions into the Gallic tribal-held lands located in the Po River Valley. The territories around and between the modern cities of Bologna, Venice, and Milan, located in north and northeastern Italy. The Roman victory against the Gauls at the Battle of Telemon in 225, being a particularly noteworthy event during this period, among others, that by 222 BC had enabled Rome to force upon the defeated Gallic tribes the usual procedure of alliances imposed and Roman colonies being set up on their lands. Though, with tensions between the Gauls and the Romans, remaining at a precarious state, sitting on the edge of a knife. And while their early military careers are not at all well documented, with Scipio's father and uncle having played significant contributing roles in the aforementioned Roman successes, largely evidenced by the fact that, in the case of his father, When the Second Punic War erupted in 218 BC, this is the year that Scipio's father was elected consul, and was reportedly a seasoned military veteran of some repute, one of the many members of the Cornelii Scipione family, going generations, centuries back, that had not only been involved, but at numerous instances, had played leading roles in the many conflicts we have touched on in this episode. For example, Scipio's grandfather and granduncle, having both been consuls leading Roman naval fleets during the First Punic War. His great-grandfather, Scipio Barbatus, who played an instrumental role in leading Roman armies in the early 3rd century BC to facilitate the conquest of Etruria. Among, quite frankly, an astoundingly impressive and long list of other Cornelii ancestors, that had been consuls, censors, and generals of Roman legions during their lifetimes. And that altogether, by the point of our Scipio's birth and youth, had each contributed significantly to Rome asserting itself as the hegemon of the Italian peninsula, even starting to scratch beyond that barrier. In turn, growing the sky-high dignitas, or ancestral glory associated with the Cornelii Scipiones built on the backs of his predecessors, whose accomplishments Scipio, we can imagine, took great pride in, but also acting as a figurative compass for Scipio's future self, ambitions, and goals, understanding the intense pressures riding on him to renew and add to this multi-generational virtue. A future that lay in service to the res publica, the cornerstone of which was military service, since, as we well know by now, Rome was a warrior society through and through, bringing us to one of the last pieces of the puzzle that would have been of utmost importance in shaping the man Scipio would become, the military training he would have received as a youth. Since, from a very young age, effectively all Roman boys, 
the future citizens of the Republic, whether patrician or plebeian. They were encouraged to play rather rough and tumble, physically demanding games. Games like Harpastam, akin to the modern sport rugby, Pugilatus, similar to boxing, and Pankratium, a combat sport that combined elements of boxing and wrestling. Of course, including having wooden swords placed in their hands to play at war, coinciding with a great deal of emphasis on maintaining physical fitness, weaved in amongst their education and religious duties, including running, jumping, and swimming. Apparently driven, not specifically as a means to maintain one's health, but more so as a means to an end, developing the physical attributes strength and skills as it related to future military service in the legions. Because given Rome's violent history, etched in their mindset was an ever-present and urgent need for developing its young men, readying them for the inevitable transition into military life, churning out future soldiers prepared to march off to war when the need called for it. And as the boys of the Republic grew older into adolescence, especially those from the most affluent families and patrician class, like Scipio, increasingly would they be exposed to more complex martial training, including horsemanship, archery, javelin throwing, along with being instructed in the finer points of fighting with swords and spears, doing so mounted as well. Much of this training, for the families that could afford it, provided by tutors, Roman army veterans. Although in Scipio's case, tutors may not have always been completely necessary, because as mentioned, his father was a skilled military veteran and commander himself, meaning that when not abroad on campaign, Scipio may have learned a lot directly from him, perhaps not just relating to weapons training, but also the qualities necessary for leadership. Yielding for Scipio, alongside his noted preference for Greek style. Due to the arduous training he would have undergone during his youth up to his late teens, a fit and well-muscled young man, as would have been the case for the vast majority of his age group peers. However, due to the wealthy means of his family, along with his patrician peers, quite reasonable to assume considerably more skilled in the use of weapons than the plebeian majority entering into military service. Those around the age of 17 or 18, the usual minimum age for eligibility in the annual military levies. With Scipio having gained strategic and tactical insights on the art of Roman warfare through the influence of his father, and at 18 years old, about to begin his apprenticeship for command in earnest, gaining his first real taste of war. When in 218 BC, as mentioned a little earlier, his father was elected consul and handed a notably large army, perhaps as large as three to four legions placed under his command, some 14 to 20,000 Roman and allied soldiers, with Scipio accompanying his father in the campaign. A campaign that appears to have initially included two distinct directives. First, needing to chastise several Gallic tribes that had risen up in rebellion in the Po River Valley, attacking the newly founded Roman settlements there. And once that had been dealt with, 
leading to the second objective, turning their attention westwards to Hispania to address the gathering Carthaginian storm. Since by very early in 218, the Roman Senate had officially declared war on Carthage, thus beginning the Second Punic War, as a result of Hannibal Barca's siege and brutal sack of the city of Saguntum, located 30 kilometers north of the modern city of Valencia on Spain's eastern coast. Saguntum, having previously become one of those smaller foreign independent entities tied to Rome through an alliance, seeking their protection. Now, although not expressly stated in historical accounts, Scipio's father's endeavors, most certainly beginning with the annual soldier levy, that would have taken place in early spring, probably around March 218, preceded by the usual four-month training period for the legions assembled, in order to whip them into shape, ready for the summer campaigning season. This training taking place on the Campus Martius, translated into English as the Field of Mars, a two-square-kilometer plot of land just north of Rome's city walls, wherein the levied citizens and allied troops would undergo a strenuous sequence of preparation, including long, heavily-laden marches and other forms of exercise and physical training to build up their strength and stamina, along with formation fighting drills and mock battles, to get them working and fighting together in a manner befitting of the legionary standard that had time and time again proven to be an essentially unstoppable recipe up until that point in time. An arduous level of training that I suspect Scipio too would have participated in as part of the cavalry, where the wealthiest citizens would be placed, since they were the only ones who could afford the horses and equipment necessary for being in this unit while also shadowing his father, learning, gaining valuable insights on what it took to lead a Roman army. The army which began its march north from Rome in late June 218 BC, towards Cisalpine Gaul. However, shortly after departing, receiving concerning reports coming out of Hispania, in learning that the Carthaginian general Hannibal Barca at the head of an enormous army, somewhere in the realm of 70,000 to 90,000 troops, had weeks past crossed the Ebro River in northeastern Spain, the boundary that the Romans had previously marked as the dividing line between the two western Mediterranean heavyweights, where their spheres of influence began and ended, resulting in Scipio's father quickly pivoting from his initial objective gathering his army on the western Italian coast, near the modern city of Pisa, where a Roman fleet was to transport his forces to the Greek-founded colony of Massilia, today the coastal city known as Marseille in southern France, intending to head off Hannibal's land invasion of Italy in the lead-up to the First Battle of the Second Punic War, a war that unbeknownst to all Romans would test their mettle their sense of gravitas, the commitment to seeing a task through, no matter how high the cost, far beyond the bounds of any wars they had been involved in up until that point. Two years in, leaving them teetering at the edge of ruin. Though for Scipio, 
a sequence of dire Roman setbacks and battle losses, wherein he would serve with distinction, showing hints of reckless bravery and fierce Roman patriotism. A living example of the virtues so highly prized by his people. In the next episode, we'll start by backtracking in time a little bit to get a better understanding of what Carthage had been doing after the First Punic War, how their expansion in Hispania, championed by Hamilcar Barca, made the Carthaginian Empire stronger than ever. With the torch of leadership there eventually being passed over to his son Hannibal, who assembled a frighteningly formidable army to besiege and lay waste to the Roman allied city of Saguntum, ultimately igniting the Second Punic War. Before Hannibal from Spain initiated one of the most remarkable and impressive marches in military history, including what the young Scipio, as a part of his father's army, would have seen and experienced as their forces landed in Massilia, attempting to head off the Carthaginian army's approach, and how Hannibal outwitted this Roman army to force his way into northern Italy through the imposing, snow-capped peaks of the Alps' mountain range. In the lead-up to the first battle of the Second Punic War, the Battle of Ticinus in late 218 BC, where Scipio, would come face to face with Hannibal's military genius, his father's army enduring a heavy loss and rendering Scipio's father gravely wounded, only saved from certain death by the recklessly heroic actions of his 19-year-old son. This and more to come in the next episode of the Warlords of History podcast. And if you want to support the podcast, there are many ways you can help. You can tell your family and friends about the show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on whichever platform you happen to access the show on. You can follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. And lastly, you can head on over to the show's website, warlordsofhistory.com, where I'll include some additional info, like images and maps pertaining to this episode for your viewing pleasure and where you can also reach out to me with any thoughts, questions, or suggestions. I would love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Theme music from Audionautics.com